I'd like to pray now, Father, that you would speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit that we might be transformed in order that the life of Jesus who resides in us can find expression through us out into the world. It's toward that end we pray and we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, the picture that you see here is a picture that I think really articulates well the challenge that many of us face. And this picture is from where I live. I live east of Seattle in the mountains and we get uh, about 400 inches of snow a year. So uh, there's no shortage of snow. Uh, and I live down in that fog in the valley right below uh, the, at the base of the ski hill. And so in November, uh, it had snowed mid-November and I normally wake up in the morning and either go for a run or a hike or I knew it had been snowing all night. I was going to go for a, for a ski. And then I woke up and it was foggy. Now, you people who live in Santa Cruz have a unique relationship with fog or San Francisco. I used to love it, I'm assuming, because you live here. And that's wonderful for you. Uh, up here in the further north regions of Seattle, we get uh, rain or, in my case, snow or sun. We don't, we don't get fog very often. And so fog for us, uh, if you did a word association, fog would equal depressing for us, right? So I woke up, and it was, it was just foggy. You couldn't see 10 feet. So I'm like this. I'm staying in bed. It's foggy. Forget it. And then there was something in me. I'm laying in bed, and I'm like this. What if? What if this is just a low fog, and it's better up above? So by faith, it's becoming an illustration now. <laughs> By faith, I got up, put my skis on, put my skins on my skis, and you start kind of walking uphill with your skis on. And within about 300 feet, I'm above the fog, right at sunrise. And then this is taken from the top, just before I skied back down into the fog. And I want to tell you, in November, that was a holy moment for me. Because when I was in the fog, this is my thinking. I hate being a pastor. I'm speaking in an empty room every week. And even though the room is empty, ostensibly people are listening because offerings are still magically showing up through the miracle of electronic funds transfer or whatever, whatever is that happens. So I still have a paycheck coming in. But most of the feedback I'm getting in November was not pleasant. I'll just say it that way, right? It had to do with politics. It had to do with the left, it had to do with the right, it had to do with conspiracy theories, it had to do with masks, it had to do with vaccinations, it had to do with, hey, the, other, the church down the street is open, what's wrong with you? Are you a leftist, are you a communist or something? We're not open, what's going on? And I, I was like, you know what? I'm done, man, and that's in the fog. And then as, as soon as I get above, and I'm up at the top here, you know, eating a power bar and drinking uh, hot cocoa out of my backpack, and I'm like this, I could be a pastor forever. This is amazing, <laughs> you know? Who cares about feedback? It bounces off me, I'm impervious. I'm called, I have a, I, I'm rooted in Christ, God is good, the sun is shining, put my skis on, you know, and then I'm home and all is right with the world because I've seen the sun. And here's the thing, it was always there, but I didn't see it. And this is, 
this is the, the threat that we want to address this morning is our loss of identity in Christ. Remember it said yesterday in Hebrews 2, 1, for this reason we must pay much closer attention lest we drift away. And so I want us to pay close attention this morning to our identity in Christ. Here's the challenge. In verse 8 of chapter 2, God says this, you have put all things in subjection under his, Christ's feet. Christ is one. Everything's already in, in, in subjection to Christ. He left nothing that is not subject to him. So that's really good news. We're told that all things are subjected to Christ. We're told that the victory's been won. We're told that we're complete in Christ. We're told that every enemy's been conquered. We're told that uh, Christ is seated, therefore it is finished, therefore all things are subject to Christ. Therefore, we sing songs, don't we, about victory in Jesus, songs about, as we just literally sing, the goodness of God, and we can shout God is good uh, from one half of the stadium, and we can respond on the other half of the stadium, you know, all the time, and all this happens because Christ has won the victory. It's all true, it's all good, it's all real, it should never be dismissed. And verse 8b says this, yet we don't see all things subjected to him. All things are subjected to him, but we don't yet see all things subjected to him. Rats. It'd be nice if we did, but we don't. What does that mean? Well, just look at your newsfeed. At a collective level, it's stuff like daily shootings, infidelity, broken marriages, marriages that don't end in divorce but are so toxic that children swear they'll never marry. It's the secret addictions, it's the not-so-secret addictions that are destroying families, destroying lives. It's the highest percentage of humanity having refugee status at any, as at any time in history. It's racism. It's the rage in response to racism. It's the rage that wants revenge, not reconciliation. It's the denial of racism. It's the reality we still live in a fallen world. It's cells mutating and cancer happens. It's loss of life. It's suicide. In my years as a pastor, I officiated the funeral of a two-year-old whose skull was crushed by the hospital bed. His mom had gone in for a minor surgery and he was in that, those hospital beds that elevate and when it went down, it crushed his skull and killed him instantly. I did another funeral of a four-year-old who was run over and killed by his dad who backed the car out of the driveway. <laughs> a husband committed suicide. A couple could never have children. A family lost every penny. These are all believers, and yet we do not yet see all things subject to him. But we do see him. And here's the question, do we? <laughs> do we? I want to address here the problem of not seeing. It's really important. Because we've already seen in chapter 2, verse 1, the challenge of drifting away. And all you need to do to drift away is nothing. Uh, I was privileged to pastor in the San Juan Islands. And if any of you, who's been to the San Juan Islands here? Anybody in Washington State? So you've been to the San Juan Islands, you know they're beautiful. Lopez Island. Uh, has, uh, has this, uh, there's a book written about Lopez Island by Annie Dillard, and she tells a story in there of uh, this man who goes out in his little skiff to collect driftwood 
in his, he's got a little motorboat, and he goes out, and then the motor dies, he can't get it started. And the tide is going out. So uh, it pulls him out, it's evening, it pulls him out, and then Annie Dillard goes over to this, uh, the house, and the wife, you know, she wakes, she knocks on the door, they're going to have coffee or something that morning, and, the, and, and she goes, where's your husband? She goes, oh, he drifted out to sea last night. And, and Annie's like this. She, Annie's from Pittsburgh, so she, she doesn't know tides very well, you know. So Annie's like this. Should we call search and rescue? No, no, no. He'll drift back in. <laughs> and sure enough, you know, they're sitting there having coffee. Here he comes. <laughs> tides do that. They just take you. They just take you. And it, look, if you want to look not like Jesus, just go with the culture, man. It'll take you. It'll take you into anger. It'll take you into an addiction to upward mobility. It'll take you into, you know, weird sexual obsessions. It'll take you into shame. It'll take you into body image issues that'll lead to teens, you know, cutting their wrists. Just do, just do nothing. And the, the, the winds of culture will fill your sails and you'll look just like the world. It's fine. You don't have to try. It just happens. If we're passive in our faith. But... Uh, <laughs> If that happens, we lose discernment. And if we lose discernment and allow the winds of culture to shape us and still use God language, then what we represent to the world is the character of Jesus rather than Jesus himself. We represent uh, Republican Jesus or Democrat Jesus or climate change green Jesus or manly man Jesus with mixed martial arts and that kind of thing. You know, whatever it is, we slip into a Jesus that asks little of us because it's a Jesus that reinforces what we already believe and who we already are. And that's, not, that's never the real Jesus. If it were, we'd never need to repent, right? So the real Jesus, like, hones in on every one of us in the room, and Hebrews 4 says, divides between soul and spirit, shows us what's eternal and lasting and what's passing away, and that's hard. And if you don't believe me, uh, that, that this challenge is real for all people who use God language. Just look at the life of Jesus. In Luke 4, his very first public ministry, there he quotes out of Isaiah, and it says this, all were speaking well of him, right? Uh, because, wow, this guy's amazing, and everybody liked him. But then immediately, his first sermon, if I can say it that way, in Luke 4, it says uh, uh, everyone was, was happy with him, and then some were saying, isn't this Joseph's son? And then this is, he, this is Jesus. He says, hey, no doubt you'll quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And then he says, truly I say to you, no prophet's welcome in his hometown. But I tell you this in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, and the sky was shut uh, for three years and six months when a great famine came over the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of the house of Israel, but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. There were many lepers in Israel. None of them were cleansed, only named the Syrian. In other words, Jesus is saying to the people of God who use God language, who know God, love God, are chosen by God, called by God, he says, hey, listen, don't think that you've got a quarter on the market here. I've come to change you, and you're resisting change, so if you won't be changed, I'll go to the Syrians. I'll go to the Gentiles. I'll go to the streets. I'll go wherever I need to go because what I need is not people who use my name as a mascot for their existing worldview. What I need is people who will follow me to the cross. And that's missing, frankly, for many people. 
So we want to, look, we want to become obsessed with seeing the Jesus who deconstructs our existing paradigm of the world so that we can rise above the fog and begin to live as people of hope. Not defined by the culture and the currents of culture, but defined by Christ. So to do that, we need to see who Jesus really is, and who Jesus really is, is a suffering servant. And the suffering servant changes our paradigm. So let me read again back in Hebrews. We started in verse 8 or so. And then we're going to go now to uh, the next couple of verses, verses 9 and 10. So I'm in Hebrews chapter 2. Again, uh, verse 9. But we do see him. We see Christ, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death. He was crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And then look at this, verse 10. It was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, here's the phrase I want us to hone in on. It was fitting for God to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. Now, this is a weird verse. If you just read it uh, and you're kind of casually reading, you kind of roll on to verse 11 or whatever. But here's the thing. <clears throat> Jesus needed perfecting. Hey, wait, 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 wait a minute. Jesus is sinless. What are you talking about? He needs perfecting. It says here, Jesus was perfected through suffering. What's that about? Was he sinless? Yes. Was he completely committed to doing the will of God? Yes. Was every response in his life from the beginning to end a reflection of God's will? Yes. So in what sense then did Jesus need perfecting? Here's the answer. Jesus is eternal, but prior to taking up human form... The desires of the Son and the desires of the Father were always exactly the same. In other words, uh, you know, if you go back to Job and you see, you know, the Trinity in this dance of creating the universe, they're enjoying perfect fellowship, and it, it got, it's never like this, where God the Father is saying, hey, I think there should be nine planets in the solar system, and Jesus is saying, no, eight's enough. Like, there's no debate. They're, they're aligned perfectly. But now Jesus in his humanity comes to a point where they're, where they're suffering. So in the garden, Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, Jesus is sweating drops of blood and Jesus is saying this. Listen very carefully. He says, Jesus, he's, Jesus praying. He says, if it's possible, praying to the Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, what? Not my will, but yours be done. And so right here's the revelation that Jesus had a will that was not the same as the will of God. Wow. And so he now must submit his will to the will of the Father. That's pretty remarkable. He needed to die to his own will in order to fulfill the will of the Father. And then uh, with that paradigm, you go back to the Gospel of John and you do a word search of this little phrase, not my own, and this is what you find. Jesus lived his whole life in his humanity saying the phrase, not my own, as a way of cueing us in to the fact that Jesus lived as an expression not of his own life, but the will of the Father. My teaching is not my own, it's from the Father. My judgment is not my own, it's from the Father. My will is not my own, it's from the Father. My works are not my own, they're from the Father. My hour, my time in life is not my own. I don't number my, I don't number my own days. They're from the Father. And then uh, significantly, my life is not my own. It's from the Father. He gave it to me. 
he'll take it up again. All that I am, says Jesus, is an expression of my availability to the Father so that I can be a full human. And a full human, a full human is what? An image bearer. So that I can bear in my body the character of God. I must say this, not my own. And then Jesus dies, rises, and says to you and I in John 21, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. I'm asking you to now, this is Jesus speaking, I'm asking you to live in relationship with me in the same way that I lived in relationship with the Father. So that even as the Father expressed the life of God through me, so you now will express my life through you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not your will, it's his. It's not your job, it's his. It's not your bank account, it's his. It's not your sexuality, it's his. It's not your vocation, not your upward mobility, not, not, your, not your personal mission statement. Your life is available. That's God's desire. Why does this matter? Because we will face the same dissonance that Jesus faced. I have a will. God has a different will. And that dissonance has a name, suffering. <laughs> Jesus didn't suffer, so you'd never need to suffer. Read Romans 5. We want to embrace this reality that suffering is part of living in a fallen world. And this frees us to let go of our demands for comfort and ease and instead embrace, embrace every season of life. Remember Ecclesiastes 3? There's a time to live, time to die, a time to laugh, a time to weep. A time for, you know, wealth, time for hunger. Time for peace, time for war. Time to scatter, time to gather. So, we embrace the time that God gives us. And then we have to learn to say, okay, God, it's not my, it's really not my life. It's yours. People ask me um, if I enjoy being a pastor, and I do enjoy being a pastor, but I say to people, God tricked me into becoming a pastor. I didn't want to become a pastor. I wanted to be uh, Eric. I wanted to be a, a, a seminary professor. And so, you know, I'd done my master's degree, and then I was going to teach a little while in Alaska and, go, and then go on and get a doctorate and all that kind of stuff and teach. And uh, en route to Alaska, uh, there was a job waiting for me at a little Bible college in Alaska that didn't start for six months. And this church in Friday Harbor called me. They'd heard a tape of me speaking at Biola Chapel. <laughs> And, and they were like, we want this guy as our interim pastor, you know, for six months. And I was living in the San Fernando Valley at the time, and it was summer, and it was 114, and my wife was eight months pregnant. And, and I flew up to, you know, Friday Harbor, San Juan Islands, and, you know, preached on a Sunday. And right as soon as I finished preaching, the elders called me in the back room. They said, hey, when can you start? And so I said, well, I got to pray about this. And I called my wife. I go, you know, they want us to move up here. And, do, and we'll just do this until we go to Alaska. And uh, this is my wife. It's like, <laughs> again, 114, San Fernando Valley. Our air conditioning's broken. We live in an upstairs apartment. Like the candles on the, on the dining room table are literally praying. <laughs> like they've melted and fallen over. And... She, I'm, I'm in a little beach house 
overlooking the San Juans, looking, looking to the east, and the sunset is turning Mount Baker pink. And here's my wife. Is it pretty there? I go, honey, if I told you, you wouldn't even, we wouldn't pray. <laughs> We'd just go. Anyway, we prayed. We, we went. And then this thing in Alaska fell through. And I'm still a pastor 40 years later. <laughs> but here's the deal. Do I actually believe, I can tell you now it's the age of 65, do I believe that God knows me better than I know myself? Yeah, I do. I, I believe it now. I didn't believe it for many years, decades actually. And now I'm like this, whatever. Because God knows me. And so I've got to learn to say, in, like not just in these big things, but moment by moment, not my will. Not my will. Not my will. That's the suffering servant. He's, he shows the way. And here's the thing. Then seeing him, here's the beauty of it, seeing him elevates us. Right? I mean, you don't get to choose how you're going to live your life. You don't get to choose the time into which you're born, the family into which you're born, the unique gifts that God has given you. You get to choose, but you do get to discover and you get to follow. Here's the thing. You know, when you read Hebrews 11 and you read about all these people who lived lives of faith, it's, it's cool because you read, you know, you read about Abraham and, you know, Isaac and all that stuff and, you know, Noah and all these guys that we really hold up, Moses. And really, if you, if you were to take a microscope and look at their lives as well, you'd realize, yeah, everybody had a pretty rough, actually. But then, you know, you come to verse 32 of Hebrews 11. What more shall I say? Time would fail me if I also tell you about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness made strong, mighty in war, put foreign, ar uh, foreign armies to flight, women were saved back, they're dead by resurrection. And you're like this. Yeah, bring it on, man. That's the team I want to be on. And then, unfortunately, it doesn't end there because it says, oh, by the way, others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mocking and scourging and COVID and chains and imprisonment. And they were stoned and sawn in two, tempted, put to death with the sword, went about in sheep and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. And so, like, uh, God is not like this. Uh, Okay, contestant number one, which door would you like? No, 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 no. You're like, you have a life God gives you. And there's some stuff behind this door, and there's some stuff behind this door, and there's fog, and there's sun, and there's rain, and there's snow, and there's loss, and there's gain, and there's cancer, and there's friends, and there's enemies. Go. Cling to Christ through all of it. And if you, if you go... You, you go needing Christ. You go needing Christ. Let's just unpack why that's so significant. We were sitting around talking last night a little bit with, over at Mike's house and chatting a little bit about going to pastor's conferences. And sometimes when I go to pastor's conferences, I feel like pastors are being motivated, you know, to think big goals and 
and have big vision, and then, you know, strategy and communication tactics, and, you know, how are we going to build this thing? And I go, wait a minute. In Proverbs 29, we're told that vision isn't something that we fabricate by thinking big ideas. Vision is literally this, a declared revelation from God. And so, so then, oh, wow, if, if my vision is going to be not my vision but God's vision, then i got to hear from God. Well, how do I hear from God? I, well, I need intimacy with God. Well, okay, but I can't just stand up here at Mount Hermon and say, so go be intimate, intimate with God because you may not be motivated to be intimate with God. Like, what motivates a person toward intimacy? Well, here's the thing. Humility creates in you this sense that you need God, Right? Because you know you don't have it all together. So then I, I, I also can't stand up here and just say, so go be humble. Because that just doesn't work. So, so what creates humility? Well, here's the answer, brokenness. And oh, now I've got good news. You're broken already. <laughs> you may not know it. And if you don't feel broken, don't worry. Give it time. Because in God's economy, all of us have to go through this thing where we come to a point in our lives where we say, you know what? This is beyond me. This is beyond me. And if in that moment you put on all your defense mechanisms that our culture has taught us to put on, then you don't need God. You'll muddle through. But you're no longer in God's story. Now you're writing your own. You want God's story? Don't muddle through. Be broken. And in your brokenness, cry out. And you're crying out, here's what will happen. You'll see him. And seeing him is what elevates us. Because it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Let me give you a perfect example of this from the scriptures. You all probably know the story of Jacob, but if you don't, I'll just tell it to you. In Jacob's case, uh, he grew up in this you know, chosen, saved, highly dysfunctional family. So if that's your family, oh, it's okay. You're in good company. Chosen, saved, highly dysfunctional. How dysfunctional? Well, you know, mom and dad had different favorites of the twins. And, you know, dad liked the hunter and the, the hummer and the shotgun and stuff like that. And mom liked the flute and the Prius and the green tea drinking Jacob, okay? So, you know, Jacob's, you know, mom's favorite. And I won't know all the details, but, you know, mom leads Jacob to scheme to get what God wanted to freely give. And Jacob lies to his older brother, uh, kind of steals from his older brother the inheritance of the promised land, and then disguises himself as his older brother, to go into dad to get the blessing from the dad, which is a big deal. And so, you know, he dresses like his older brother. He smells like his older brother. His older brother, you know, shaves three times a day, super hairy, and Jacob isn't. And so Jacob puts goat skins on to look, to feel like his older brother. And, you know, dad feels him and smells him and everything, and then blesses him. And then Esau comes in, and he's got nothing. And then Esau says, it's no problem. Dad's an old man. Soon as he's gone, I'll get everything back. How? <coughs> and by the way, he drives a Prius. It's not even going to be a fight, right? This is simple. 
I'll, I'll, just, I'll just get the blessing back by killing Jacob. Mom knows of older son's plan, says to Jacob, hey, get out of town for a few days. You know, here, listen, leave the land of promise. Leave God's story for a few days, which becomes over 20 years, but whatever. So first night out, he's on the run, and oh, just listen to this, right? He's on the run, and uh, God shows up in a dream. Angels coming up and down a ladder in the desert. And th- I'll just let you in on my own story a little bit. Now, every time I, every time I read Genesis 28 in this story, every time, I'm waiting for God to say what a particular employer in my past would have said. Did you, blow, did you lie? Yeah. Did you steal your brother's thing? Blessing? Yeah. I knew it. I knew I couldn't trust you. You know what? I, it's over. Clean out your desk. We're changing the locks. I'm going to find somebody who I can trust. I mean, doesn't that make sense in the world we live? That, that that's what God would say? Like, God's building a team here. And you know, you got to have the right people on the bus, don't you? So if they don't cut it, <coughs> off. Man, I'm ready to hear it every time I read it. Because the performance mentality is so deeply ingrained in me. And instead, I was going to paraphrase this, but it's too important. I'm going to read it. Just pretend for a minute that you're Jacob. You're afraid. You've lied. You've cheated. You're stolen. You're alone. Your brother wants to kill you. And God shows up. And here's what God says to Jacob. Just listen. Don't even read it. Just listen. Genesis 28. I'm the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, the God of Isaac. The land that you're lying on, I will give it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be the dust of the earth. You'll spread out to the west and the east and the north and the south. And in you and your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I am with you. I will keep you. Wherever you go, I will bring you back to the land. I will not leave you until I've done what I promised. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not kidding you. That's who God is. And if that's not who your God is, you've got to change your image and align with reality. Because when you see that, all fear is gone. And God becomes this, you know, approachable one. See, the biggest problem isn't our sin. We all blow it, just like Jacob. The problems are what happened before and after sin. Before we sin, we've forgotten who we are, and that's why we sin. It says in Galatians uh, 5, there's a battle between the flesh and the spirit, and this battle happens 
Because when we come to faith in Christ, we discover that we have nothing less than the divine life of the risen Jesus living in us. In other words, because Christ, look, when I received Christ, I didn't just get my ticket stamped so that my eternal destiny has changed. I'm now filled with nothing less than the life of God and the person of Jesus, my spirit wed with the Holy Spirit, so that now within me resides the capacity for the hope, joy, mercy, wisdom, strength, peace of Christ himself. That's in you if you're a follower of Christ. But remember the text, we don't yet see all things subject to Christ, which means that in addition to Christ in me, also in me resides my flesh, which is anger, fear, greed, cynicism, gossip, lust, profound insecurities, driving me to do things and say things that are not from Christ, but out, you know, out from my flesh. And so you know, Romans 7 talks about this battle that's always going on, right, between the flesh and the spirit. Who can't identify with this? You know, the rotten things that I don't want to do, I do. The, the good things that I want to do, I, I don't do. And this happens all the time in, in all of our lives. And it happens in, you know, macro ways every, you know, January 1. And then before the Rose Bowl is over, you've already blown it. And then, and then it happens, it happens daily in little ways where you're like this. Okay, I know this is me. And I hate to say this to you because now you'll call me out on it this week. I mean, I know ice cream creates a mucus thing in me. I know it. But doggone, it's so good, right? And so, you know, I know what to do and I don't do it. And I pay the price. I'm like, okay, that's it. I'm never again until there's, you know, mocha. And then it's, you know, wears me down. It's a battle, Right? So you then, but then you look at Romans 8, 6 through 9, and this is what you realize. The conclusion of this little dialogue that Paul articulates for us about this battle is this. He says, look, your truest, fundamental, eternal identity is not the flesh, but the spirit. So that in Galatians 5, we're told this, walk by the spirit, and you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. The, the more deeply rooted I am in my identity in Christ, the less prone I am to give in to the demands of the flesh. I must be deeply rooted in Christ. And, and for me, that means daily reminding myself, I'm complete in Christ. I'm called. I'm loved. I'm adopted. I'm whole. I, I just have to receive it and remind myself over and over again. I meditate every morning on my identity in Christ so that I can overcome the, the liar who tells me that I am my ice cream. I am my self-medicating, uh, you know, hidden addictions. I am my fear. I am my insecurity. I am my greed. No, I'm not. Not fundamentally. That's passing away. And of course, after we've sinned, it's tough too. Because after we've sinned, there's this sense of shame and condemnation. And that's when Satan elevates this false identity to the status of who we really are. Until Jesus once again re-intervenes, as he did in Peter's case, who having denied him is now decided to go fishing instead and can't even fish anymore until Jesus directs him to the other side of the boat and he catches all the fish and then he comes back and it's a little replay of the Jacob story where on the, on the, on the beach, Jesus says, do you love me? And, and it's a Greek thing different words for love, don't even worry about it for now. But the point, the point is, you know, when Peter says, yeah, I love you, he's a different word, like a less powerful word for love as a confession. 
And then here's Jesus, feed my sheep. In other words, all I need from you is a confession. If you're broken and humble and honest and transparent and vulnerable, I'll use you. But if you're like this, nope, I'm good, then I can't break in. That's the challenge. So we need to become rooted and grounded in our truest identity. And as we will hear in a few minutes, understand that God is immensely approachable, even as fire. Because he will transform us. And finally, seeing frees us. You know, it says in uh, Hebrews 2.11, he, Christ, is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Beautiful. It says in 2.15 that we're freed from the fear of death. Not just the death of our bodies, but the death of our reputations, the death of our preferred lifestyles, the death of our dream life, whatever. The text is saying that fear of loss is governing people and that when people are governed by the fear of loss, they're enslaved. But God's intention is to free us from the fear of loss so that we realize that even if the mountains fall to the sea, you know, God is still with us. And, and so there's a gift that can never be taken away from us. What's that gift? It's the gift of union with Christ. His life united with our life in a marriage, the result of which is that uh, the divine life of God can pour out from us into a thirsty world because we're free. Remember? Freed from fear, two, uh, Hebrews 2.15. How many are living in fear today? How many are living in fear? Fear of catching it. <laughs> fear that their Second Amendment rights are going to be taken away. Fear that their children are going to fail in some terrible way. Fear that we'll lose our health or worse, lose our health insurance. <laughs> you know, Fear that we'll lose our position of prominence, our reputation. And so here we are. You know, we're like Martha. We're trying to hold everything together in service of Jesus. And Jesus says, you know, really only a few things are necessary. Really only one thing is necessary. I'm enough. Romans 8. I'm in you. Richard, you know, abide in me, and then I'll do the work. Psalm 73, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, speaks of the danger of envy. And I'll paraphrase a bit, but the psalmist is saying, you know, this is Asaph. He says, you know, God, I've been trying to follow you, and I've observed something. My pagan neighbors who aren't following you seem happier than I am. You know, I take my kids to the dentist. Their mouth is a sieve of cavities, you know, and it's going to be $10,000. And, you know, my organic vegetarian Buddhist neighbors, their kids' teeth are, you know, white and shining, and, ah, no cavities. And I invest in the market, <coughs> down it goes. They invest, <coughs> up it goes. I diet, <coughs> out I go. They eat four pizzas, down they go. What's up with that? I mean, that's my paraphrase of Psalm 73. It's not literal exactly. <laughs> so, what, you know, early on in this Seattle adventure, you know, we'd moved to a house 
about a mile from the church, and this is about the second month into my ministry, and we'd become really good friends with the neighbors directly across the street. And they are as, as it's an old word, but I'll say it, they're, they're as new age and pagan as you can possibly be, right? And, and delightful people, wonderful people. They had, a, they had a great kind of espresso machine and had this, they made the best coffee. And I, you know, I'd go over there and have a little coffee sometimes and we'd sit and chat and they, you know, they'd talk about, you know, their forays into Buddhism and their forays into, you know, different kinds of mysticisms and holistic health and all this stuff. And I, so I remember one Sunday, well, it's supposed to be a church at 8.30 and it's like 8.25 and we're only a few minutes away, so it ought to be just get in the car and go. But I've, you know, we got a minivan, we got three little kids and the kids are not coming in to the car and I'm getting really upset and I don't know that my neighbor, Dave, is on, it's a sunny day as he's on the front porch reading a sale time, sipping coffee in his bathrobe and I'm, you know, you know, honking. Nothing's happening. I yell, I roll out the window. Get out here! <laughs> Sunday, I'm the leader. You gotta be at church. Come on. <laughs> they come out, they're crying. Stop crying. I want joy now, right? <laughs> we go to church, man. I want these people to know that we're a Christian thing. <laughs> Kids are crying in the car. <laughs> Throwing in reverse, back out. Now I'm heading down and right to my left now, there's the couple, right? Only it's only another couple, but just David. He sees me, you know, he lifts his perfectly brewed cup of coffee <laughs> and he shouts, give him hell, Richard, you're fired up this morning. <laughs> oh, baby, I wanted to die. <laughs> but I, let me tell you, in that moment, in that moment, I'll just confess it to you. I wanted to be him. Do you know what I mean? I didn't want to have to feel like, have I done enough? Have I prayed enough? Am I successful enough? Am I holy enough? I wanted to leave it all behind and go, you know what? This is a good life. A bathrobe, espresso, Seattle Times, on Sunday of all things. Who knew it could even be done? <laughs> well, here's what happened. Fast forward. They divorced. I shepherded him quite a bit. He never became a Christian, to, to my knowledge. But six years later, I'm preaching, and I finish, and a gal comes up to me, and she hands me this lengthy note she says, you know, most of what I want to say right now is in the note, but she says, I just want to say to you, I'm moving away to college, and you've never met me. Because, I remember a big church. Our, our building seats 600 or so. She goes, I always sat in the back. You, know, you wouldn't know who I am. She says, but I've been coming for four years, since ninth grade. She said, you know, in ninth grade, I had some body image issues. I had a friend who was schizophrenic. And, um, you know, we were both in therapy, but it wasn't doing it for us. So I was sort of dabble in different religions. And my uncle said to me, you know who really understands God? My neighbor. 
Richard. You should go to his church. She was like this. Every Sunday, I'd bring my schizophrenic friend. We'd sit in the back. We'd laugh. We'd cry. We bought Bibles. We're following Jesus now. Thank you. And she walked away. Man, I hold on to that letter. Because we don't know what God is doing. But God says to us, look, quit trying to hold it all together. Just abide in me and show up and allow my life in you to do what you could never do. And good things are going to happen. You feel inadequate? Good. Welcome to the club. So do I. But God's here anyway. We don't yet see all things subject to him. But we do see him. May we see him today. Amen.